0: Hello, and welcome to episode 2.7, the Gobble Gobble edition of Notes from the Isle Seat, the podcast that covers the arts in northern Chautauqua County, sponsored by the 1891 Fredonia Opera House. My name is Tom Lachlan, and I'm your host as we bring you news and information about arts events at the Opera House and around the region, including interviews with artists and creators across the county. Ah, Thanksgiving! Now the most ignored and undervalued holiday on the calendar. Falling between Halloween and the various winter holidays such as Christmas, Thanksgiving has been all but ground up and spat out by the massive commercial selling and buying season that now begins on Halloween. Despite all that so many of us have to be thankful for, including the 1891 Fredonia Opera House, a little more on that later, As a society, we now pay little heed to the holiday. Sure, many of us may take the day to cook that big Thanksgiving meal, watch a little football, and spend time with the family, but there are very few visible reminders anymore of the holiday which used to mark the beginning of the winter holiday season. Between pre-Black Friday sales, early Black Friday sales, Black Friday sales, post-Black Friday sales, Cyber Monday sales, radios playing Christmas music, Christmas commercials, and store decorations that all start in October, Thanksgiving is a shadow of its former self. But here at Notes from the Aisle Seat, we are all in on Thanksgiving. It was always my family's favorite holiday. And this year, we are gathering as a family for the first time since the pandemic started, and maybe a year or two before that. I can't even begin to tell you how grateful I am for that. One thing I can tell you right away that I am thankful for is to have so many wonderful arts venues in the area. Since starting this podcast last year, I've come to appreciate more and more how much wonderful art is in this region. So much that sometimes I can't cover it all in one episode. Right now things are slowing down a bit, what with Thanksgiving break and all, but there are still a few events worth noting. First up, there's a conversation with Mr. Dan Lenzian and Mr. Zertan Lim of the Department of Theatre and Dance at SUNY Fredonia. The department is producing its second Walter Gluer main stage production this year, a drama entitled Radium Girls. Dan is the director and Zertan is the scene designer. Here's our conversation. I am really happy to welcome into the podcast right now uh, two uh, colleagues from uh, the Department of Theater and Dance at SUNY Fredonia, where they're going to be doing a production of Radium Girls. The first is Mr. Dan Lenzian, uh, who is the director. Hello, Dan. Hello. Hello. Great to be back. Good. And uh, I also have Mr. Zerton Lim. He's a first timer. He is the resident scene designer and production manager over at the department. Hi, Zerton hello all right so let's get it going um Dan obviously you're the director you have a a, a major say in which shows you like to direct you're developing um uh I, I don't know if the word reputation is correct but you are developing a, a, a reputation as someone who is doing uh, uh much more modern work and Radium Girls really fits into that that uh, slot there so tell us how you pick, where you found it how you picked it why you picked it all of those basic questions
1: yeah, that's a great question, Tom. Thank you. You know, um, for me, I always like to just start and sort of see, like, um, what are the top plays that are being produced in the U.S. right now? And Radium Girls kept topping the list. And whenever you see that, I always think, what is what is it about this play? What is it about this that's kind of connecting with both um, student enjoyment, and audience enjoyment, and also cultural conversation? And the show really is about... Um, The workers' rights, specifically of a a group of women that work in a radium factory or a radium dial painting factory. That's how they used to make watches glow um, from 1917 to 1928. And when I read it, I thought, um, this is a great story. It's so timely in the sense that it connects to so many, um, you know, contemporary issues like I mean you just choose one and, and it's there and then um I also though thought it was really interesting because the play is so highly theatrical it's almost like epic theater where there are these short episodic scenes and they're contrasted between this sort of Stark realism against this sort of like almost wacky commenty um um you know a fantasy world of newspapers and these characters that are commenting on newspaper so I thought um I I was interested in the content I liked the form form uh, informs content content informs form and i just felt like it would be a great experience for students and designers
0: and audiences here at Fredonia now the play itself is actually you know focuses uh, primarily i guess on three women but it's not a three-hander there's a you can have either a, a cast of 20 or 30 or a cast of like nine which way did you go I went right writing them i mean i went a little bit above 9 actually there's about 12 or 13 some
1: characters i felt really strongly that they were played by one actor like grace or miss wiley and other actors kind of double and triple um i thought it i thought it uh it's written in the script that actors are supposed to change hats change costumes play multiple different characters and uh i felt like um that would be a great op- acting opportunity
0: and a design opportunity for our students um now, uh, uh, pretty specifically, the play itself, um, the story of the Radium Girls is is uh, interesting in terms of labor law and all that kind of stuff. I think it really, uh, from what my research tells me, did a lot to actually bring in many of the uh, labor regulations that, that we have today because of its nature. But the story is actually kind of grim, shall we say, uh, in the sense that uh, over 26 young women died, and they didn't die wonderful deaths. They died pretty horrible slow deaths. Does the, does the play really get into that much? Well, if you're asking, I mean, I think that audiences are going to
1: feel a lot during this play. They're going to feel pathos. They're going to feel sadness. They're going to feel happiness. There are moments that are ridiculously funny that the cast has found and lived into. So for me, it feels a lot like life. You know, I, I would say um, that it's it's so... Multi layered and multi textured. I think um, um, there is uh, the, the actors talk about the things that are affecting them. There is uh, no um, makeup or special effects or anything like that. I wanted to stay away from that because I felt like the actors could tell the story. But I think that D.W. Gregory's play is amazing in the sense that it tells the story, but it also tells the story of Reader, um, who was the factory um, um, uh, plant sort of um, manager and eventually president and owner who um, um, makes the mistake of not seeing what's going on and kind of placing corporate profit over human um, safety. And so I think that the play also sort of serves to us as kind of uh, following his track, a person who they thought was absolutely doing the right thing for the entire story and then suddenly realizes, oh my gosh, uh, I've really missed the mark with this. And so that's something that I think audiences will really attach to as well.
0: So uh, let's turn to you for a second. Now you're just coming off, uh, uh, having designed the uh, production of into the woods, which is a massive set. Hmm. Um, um, and, uh, you, you know, had these massive trees and everything like that and uh, I'm sure projections and stuff like that. And now you're designing in the Bartlett theater, which is a smaller space obviously, and, uh, requires a lot more interesting, um, uh, intimate approaches what's your what's your approach for designing this multiple locations uh multiple scenes uh is it is it I don't even know if it's in the round so I have to ask that question too
2: it's actually in the uh modified thrust so uh but in a diagonal thrust so uh I, I, again the idea that the audience is kind of surrounding the the playing space in three sides um it's really interesting for me in terms of whenever we're programming uh, the, the the plays that get picked for the Marvel and the plays that get picked for the Bartlett. Um, clearly size is always one of those, uh, one of the things that we really touch upon. But ultimately uh, the things that we produce in the Bartlett uh, are usually very different than the things that we produce in the Marvel uh, because of the limitations. And I actually enjoy the, the challenges of the limit, uh the challenges of those limitations in the Bartlett, which is a smaller intimate space. Uh everything is exposed. And so for me, the approach for this show was not necessary. Uh, I, I love that I I love the idea of this uh of the Bartlett because it forces you not to do things realistically because you can't fit it. You can't fit a gigantic tree. You can't fit a, a boardroom office and then shift immediately to um to a, a living room set. Um, and so part of my conversations with Dan about this was definitely this idea of, okay, uh, I, we need to, I need to think about this, not as individual locations, but okay, so what's, what's the gesture? What's the large overarching, uh, uh, image that I want the audience to sit with? and yet still allows for all of the action, all of the locations, and ultimately all of the staging that Dan is going to accomplish. Um, one of the great things about this play is that it, it, it's real, It has, it has it's historical, it's happened, which means there are lots of documentation and lots of images that I can just kind of sink my teeth into. Um, and of course, the first thing that, you know, in looking at all of these kinds of images, Um, was the factory. And I feel like we never really leave the factory. Uh, And so that that was kind of like that was my touchstone of, okay, we're always going to be in the factory or we're always going to get a sense that we're always in the factory, i.e., you know, Grace and Reader, although we see them in different locations, are two characters that never fully leave that factory. That factory and everything that happens in there are both embedded in both of their psyches and both and their lives. Um, and so ultimately, for me, that was at least an easy way of going, all right, so the location, no matter what, always needs to feel like we're always in the factory. And then everything else was kind of, all right, uh, how do we get to different places? We can denote this really simply by a table, by a chair, by a tablecloth. Uh and ultimately, uh, what Dan and I landed on were three gestures. Um, you know, the radium, the clock dials, which is part of the uh, the story. Um, and so that's uh, that's del- uh, that's uh, in the architecture and in in the design uh, as the floor. Uh, Dan's uh, Dan's idea of the spine of the show, which is for him, uh, all about light. Uh, And how light penetrates and both light as a figurative and a literal sense. And so that architecture of windows and doorways for me that I saw in uh, in the factory made a lot of sense. And so I dealt with that in a very sculptural sense and then ultimately the last gesture was this idea of again the the whole gist of the show of how the poison gets into the uh, into the female workers which is these brushes that are dipped and are and they are told they have to you know sh- uh put a fine point to it by using their mouth because that's the most efficient way to do so uh and so for me i could not avoid that Paintbrush being a part of the environment. And so, you know, Dan and I agreed on hanging about roughly uh, 350 paintbrushes in the space. Uh, Again, these small paintbrushes dipped in green ink uh, that just basically hang in the space um, to encapsulate it. And so that's uh, those were kind of the three gestures. And then all of a sudden, we had a playing space, we had an environment that was flexible, and we had the opportunity for uh the other designers and for the actors to kind of interact with it and again i i love that that the bartlett provides us with that so yeah that's 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 the short and long end of how that process went for us
0: okay let me get this clear you've got 350 small camel hair brushes hanging from the ceiling Mm -hmm. and are the did you say the tips were painted
2: the tips were uh we dipped at the, the the tips with green paint and some of the green and, and we also have like glow paint. So hopefully uh with a few more tweaks that that kind of like, again, that's this idea that this little green dots are surrounding the space and just floating in the ether uh, was uh, at least the gesture that I, you know, I was really interested in. And then of course the the sculptural idea of 350 uh uh, paintbrushes that are just hanging into space like a mobile uh, was just I, I, again I could not I could not help that uh seeing that and i could not help uh and i i wanted to see how how we can accomplish it
0: that's a that's kind of amazing what about well certain i'm going to ask you a little bit because you've got all these structures so i have two questions two other questions for you maybe you can answer them for me um number one what is because of the those paint brushes and everything and the and the fact that we're dealing with radium which glows how, how is the lighting designer approaching this show
2: uh Shea possession, uh they're they're basically also approaching it from this idea of um uh how do I say this? And, and again, uh I am a poor lighting designer substitute. Um but in our conversations there was definitely this gesture of uh, green also the color green as a permeating idea mm-hmm. uh, and so a lot of a lot of Shay's gestures tend toward that i.e some of the gestures are very diagonal and very specific but then when there are moments of realization or moments of clarity, there is this uh, you know shay's playing with this idea of basically tinting the tinting, 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 tinting the world with that green color uh and so there's this uh, i uh, both symbolic and very subtle a uh, subconscious way that shay is uh storytelling uh how do we how do we story tell Uh how do we do the storytelling so that the audience is uh always with us and understands that when we're shifting uh, we are in a new location and that location may be defined by a pool of light or gobos. Again, the same uh the same challenges that I absolute challenges and limitations I enjoy with the Bartlett. Uh, I think the the lighting designers of those shows have a heavier load to lift because uh because again, Uh, scenery in that space is always going to be limited, which means lighting is gonna do a lot more of the heavy lifting. Uh, And so I love the conversations that we have about that and just the collaboration, because again, it's always, you know, if I'm gonna put something in that space, I need to definitely have a conversation with the lighting designer to be able to make sure they have opportunities and they have options uh, and that I'm helping with the storytelling
0: the Bartlett is a smaller space. How does that affect the acting, Dan? How how do you, how did you approach it as a director to get the kinds of performances you need for that space?
1: You know, I think um, I feel so lucky to work and teach at Fredonia because um, I'm able to kind of work with students in the classroom who learn my vocabulary and learn my kind of method of doing things that then um, translates to the stage. So it's almost kind of like working in a rep company where I feel I can just sort of, speak. I don't have to speak very much. Like sometimes too, like the like you can just hear the snap and all of a sudden the pace picks and they know, like they just know. So that's a, <laughs> um, um, a great thing about working with students and having kind of uh, uh, the sort of rep company relationship that we have um, at a university program that then does kind of um, plays in the evening. But what I would say is I think like um, I love uh, the three-quarter thrust in the Bartlett because it allows you to kind of make odd angles or odd choices or you're seeing a different show from every single uh, seat. So you could see the show multiple times and see different things just because of the way that it's staged. Um, I, I really appreciate that. And I'm also going to say that, uh, you know, uh, you have to sort of fill a larger house when you're in a large proscenium stage and sometimes subtlety needs to be kind of sloughed off for clarity, right? The person in row X needs to see what's happening upstage left um, in a way that doesn't happen in the Bartlett. In the Bartlett, you're never more than what, Zertan. I mean, m- math is certainly not my strong suit. So 30 feet, 20 feet away. Oh God, from much smaller.
2: Uh, like the, uh, 10 feet is like. Thank a, God I asked, like... <laughs> right? Like, then people
1: would be thinking they're going to be 30 feet away and they're 10. But um, you're so close That you can literally see the performers breathe. And so I think that just kind of uh, um, being back in the theater together, watching these actors on stage is such an amazing experience because there's no hiding. And and fakery will not, you can get away and fake some stuff on a big stage. And trust me, I have across the U.S. um, done that. Uh but in a space like this, thanks Tom, that was a joke. Thank you for leaving me hanging and not laughing. Well, I'm trying not um, to laugh
0: in the middle of your talking, but you know, I mean I'm just that's the of point. It as- the, the viewers want to hear the comic banter or the, the listeners want to hear the comic banter. <laughs> well, I'm just as guilty of it as you are, except I've been doing it longer than you have. So you Yeah. Know. <laughs> no, you know what I'm talking about.
1: But in a space like the Bartlett um you can't do that. And I think no. the actors are really rising to the challenge of an incredibly difficult, you know, piece uh where that's happening.
0: Now I'm going to ask both of you one one, one final question um um and uh, the play actually is an historical play it deals with an historical reality and I'm wondering how you've incorporated the historical reality of the situation so for example Dan um uh how you know these these characters actually lived so did you incorporate any are your uh, three major actors your principal actors um uh, incorporating any of that Zerton, is there any kind of you know historical callback in this in the uh, scenic elements that we'll see any of that going on we'll take dan first and we'll jump to zerton
1: the play is not realism it is historical in a sense but it is not um a documentary theater or um anything like that that says it is realistic so i felt it really important to allow the give the actors some freedom around the given circumstances of the play in the same way that we would approach you know, an August Wilson piece or, you know, an, a Chekhov piece or a Carol Churchill piece. Um, all you can't play a historical footnote, all you can play is the given circumstances. I also felt like it was really important to. Um, cast an incredibly diverse cast because the st- the story of the play and, and what has happened in the play has affected all people uh, throughout the the world is happening now in Flint Michigan it happened with the Dakota Access pipeline so i felt like bringing um many different voices uh to the play was really important and that's how i cast it and i think um the actors are so be- beautiful and brilliant
2: in the roles sure, Tom? Uh for me, it was kind of uh the, the most important element for me and, and in terms of my research, other than the warehouse, uh those warehouse images, I ultimately gravitated towards all the images of the the women workers and all of these kinds of pamphlets of hey, uh showing the women uh showing the women workers painting the dials and all of these like really beautiful, beautiful images of of these photographs that in retrospect you are looking at going wow that is they're they're putting poison in their mouths uh and that uh and so for me the gesture the uh the most important thing for me was the paint brushes and the tra- uh, these wooden trays in which these uh dials came in uh those i wanted to be as real as 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 accurate as again in the same gesture as dan said um it, it, we can only get as real as possible. Uh, so for me, it was the, the gesture of the, the scale, uh, the gesture of that shape, the gesture, the, 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 the feel of it. And then basically from there uh, gravitating out of that, you know, the, the realism, or at least the, 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 the historical accuracy diminishes or at least, uh gradient uh, it, it, it it's uh, an ombre of uh 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 how real and then how how theatrical and then ultimately how gestural uh and so but for me it was always from you know that that paintbrush was the most real that i wanted and then everything else that radiates out of that uh is in this gradient and so uh that that to me was the most important thing and so um to be able to have that thing that the 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 actress actors are playing with and using be the real thing or at least uh be in scale to what those women uh used and then of course that gesture repeated uh 350 times over in the space was for me what uh, uh what encapsulates the 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 piece and the realism for it great Okay, I you know
0: as always, I'm always get fascinated by these interviews that I do because the, uh, they always lead to more uh, questions and interest conversation. But you only get a limited time, so I'm gonna have to cut you guys off there. But I really enjoyed it. I would be remiss, however, if I didn't mention that uh, uh, Dan had a very very successful production of the play "Burst" in Buffalo at the Alleyway Theater. Uh, got a lot of um, uh, uh, notice up there, so congratulations to you, Dan, for that. And very much. Uh, thank you. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. And uh, um, I look uh, uh, forward to, this is going to be like the first week in December of this show, right? So we'll all look forward to, uh, to seeing this production because it sounds terribly, terribly interesting all the way around. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Um, take care. Get some rest before it all goes uh, down, okay?
2: <laughs> thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Tom. Radium Girls runs Thursday through Sunday, December 1 through 4. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday evening. Performances are at 7.30 p.m. And the Saturday and Sunday matinees begin at 2 p.m. Tickets are $20 in advance, $25 at the door for the general public, and $5 in advance, $10 at the door for students. You can get your tickets online at www.fredonia.edu backslash tickets, or by calling the box office at 716-673-673.
3: So, fill your plate and feel your drink and fill this house with family. The kind of love a thousand miles can't wash away. Cause the older that I get, I see life short and bittersweet. Thank God for this Thanksgiving day.
0: As I've already mentioned, I am extremely grateful to the 1891 Opera House for allowing me to take on this podcast. It's such a treat to be able to talk to performers who come to the Opera House, as well as old colleagues from SUNY Fredonia who are such experts in the world of fine arts. I'm thankful for my regular, dependable contributors such as Alberto Ray, Dan Ejas, Robert Strauss, Julie Newell, Dan Lenzian... Hyla Stellhorn, Paul Preston, and so many others who offer me their time and expertise to discuss offerings at the college and at the Opera House. I've gotten the chance to interview people like Ted Vigil, Tom Paxton, Greg Cahill, Emilio Palame, and Pete Correale, as well as local artists like Tina Rousa, Marcia Merens, Ben Shidi, Phil Hastings, Audrey Dowling, and Sarah Baker Mahalik. Most of all, I am thankful To all my listeners who take the time to download and listen to this podcast. As of this recording, there have been a grand total of 980 downloads from the Podbean site alone for this podcast, not including downloads from other podcast apps like Apple and Spotify. While those aren't Joe Rogan numbers, I am grateful for every single one of those downloads and listens. I'd be even more grateful if, the next time you give this podcast a listen, you introduce a friend or colleague to this podcast so that we can not only grow the listener base but also increase membership and support for the 1891 Fredonia Opera House. Not to get all PBS on you, but we depend upon your contributions to stay open and in operation. We all thank you for that.
3: To those family celebrations.
0: And speaking of thank yous, here are a few people who have taken the time to call in and tell us why they're thankful to have the 1891 Fredonia Opera House in our community. This is Barbara
1: from Fredonia. I'm indebted to the community members who had the vision and determination to save and restore the Opera House. I'm thankful for the excellent work of the current staff of Rick, Marcia, and Dan. I've been fortunate to see ballets from the Bolshoi,
4: operas from the Met, theater from London, award-winning movies, and live shows with world-class performers. I'm also grateful I've learned about Chautauqua County's history,
1: and it is all presented right here in this beautiful theater in the village where I live. Thanks.
4: As an usher at the Opera House, I'm especially thankful for such a caring staff. Marsha, who schedules the events for the usher, Rick, who books incredible events, and Dan with his creative lighting. Long live the 1891 Opera House and Performing Arts Center. Hi there. I'm thankful for all of the tireless energy of the Opera House staff, Rick, Marsha, and Dan. They continue to bring us a wide variety of programming to our area, and I know it requires a lot of work and energy. Thank you. This is Cindy from Sheridan, New York.
2: I'm grateful for the variety of wonderful programming presented at the Opera House and the fact that I always feel welcomed, comfortable, and at home there. I'm also thankful for the Notes from the ILC podcast, which gives great information about activities at venues throughout Chautauqua County. Thank you.
4: This is Joni, and I'm an usher at the Opera House, and I love it because it's like a mini-shade buffalo right in our own Perdonia. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience, and I hope more people will share it with us.
2: Thank you. Hi, this is Sheila Hahn, and I love the Fredonia Opera House, and I'm thankful for it because right here, walking distance from my home, I can have an evening out, go out to dinner, and then catch a part of the cinema series, a live event. On a Saturday, I can go to live at the Met. There are so many options to choose from. There's always something to do at the Fredonia Opera House. We do not have to drive all the way to Buffalo or Erie to have a cultural outing. And I am so grateful to live here in walking distance of the Opera House. Happy Thanksgiving. This is Rick Davis, Executive Director of the 1891 Fredonia Opera House. And on behalf of the staff, I would just like to say that we are thankful for all of our patrons and supporters. Whether you attend events, make financial contributions, serve on our board, volunteer at our events, or just serve as an ambassador and speak highly of the Opera House to people you know. We are very appreciative of all that you do for us. Happy Thanksgiving.
0: Here's the arts calendar for November 23rd through December 8th. On Saturday, December 3rd, the 1891 Fredonia Opera House will present the movie The Grinch from the famous Dr. Seuss story. Benedict Cumberbatch voices The Grinch as he plots to steal Christmas from the Who's in Whoville. The animated film will screen at 4 p.m. Admission is free. This event is in conjunction with Fredonia Festival's Miracle on Main Street celebration. Extasis 2.0 student recitals will present their second set of early evening free recitals on Thursday, December 8th at 5.30 p.m. at the Opera House. Curated by the Extasis duo of Eloran Avni and Natasha Farney of the School of Music, the recitals feature the talents of student musicians from the Fredonia School of Music. The University Chorus will present its Fall Concert on Tuesday, November 29th at 8pm in King Concert Hall. Admission is free. The Roush Recital Hall features a number of upcoming free events, all beginning at 8pm. The Fredonia Trombone Choir will perform on Monday, November 28th. The Fredonia Chamber Orchestra and Sinfonia will perform on Wednesday, November 30th and the Fredonia Jazz Orchestra will perform on Thursday, December 1st. In addition, guest artist Carolyn Kim on cello and Jiting Yang on piano will give a recital on Tuesday, November 29th. The Department of Visual Arts and New Media will present their senior art and design show from Friday, December 2nd through Sunday, December 11th in the Marion Art Gallery. Please check the Marion Art Gallery website for open times. The Merrin's BFA Dance Senior Projects will be performed on Friday, December 2nd, beginning at 7.30 p.m. in the Merrin's Dance Studio at the Rockefeller Arts Center. Admission is free, but tickets are required due to limited seating. The Kaleidoscope Series will present North Pole Nonsense with Circtacular on Friday, December 2nd at 7 p.m. in the King Concert Hall. This children's Christmas show features aerial, dance, and ground acrobatics in the good old-fashioned Christmas spirit. All tickets for the event are $16. Finally, the Fredonia Holiday Choral Concert featuring the Fredonia Camerata, College Choir, and Chamber Choir will take place on Saturday, December 3rd at 8 p.m. in the King Concert Hall. The performance features music of the season, and will be broadcast on WNED later in December. Admission is free. Wear your finest holiday outfits. Here's a special program note. Our next and final podcast of 2022 will be in one week rather than the usual two weeks. Episode 2.8 will drop on Wednesday, November 30th, 2022 so that we can feature upcoming events in early December in a timely fashion. Be sure to mark your calendar for that special release date of November 30th for Episode 2.8 on your calendar. Perhaps the most singular collection of female opera stars ever assembled will be coming to the Opera House Live at the Met series on Saturday, December 10th at 1pm. The Hours, a new opera composed by Kevin Putz and featuring the talents of mega divas Renee Fleming, Kelly O'Hara, and Joyce DiDonato, Donato, will be making its Metropolitan Opera House premiere. It's an operatic adaptation from the 1998 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Michael Cunningham, which also had an Academy Award-nominated film adaptation starring Meryl Streep, Nicole Kidman, and Julianne Moore. I could not think of anyone more qualified to discuss this groundbreaking event than Miss Julie Newell. Now, I have to tell you, all you listeners, that um, there is nobody I would rather have right now for this particular segment of this particular podcast than Distinguished Teaching Professor Julie Newell of the Voice Faculty at SUNY Fredonia. Julie, welcome.
4: Thank you, Tom. Wonderful to, to be with you again and talk about fun stuff that we love to talk about. All the time.
0: All the time. All the time. Now, the fun stuff we're going to talk about right now, however, is the upcoming um, Live at the Met production of The Hours over at uh, 1891 Fredonia Opera House coming up on December the 10th. And I have to believe that you're, I'm excited about it, but I have to believe you're doubly excited about seeing this particular production. Tell us why.
4: Yeah. Ecstatic. So it's a, it's a premiere. It's a world premiere, and that always, of course, elicits uh, different exciting feelings. But for me, uh, I I I truly believe that this piece is going to have what we would say legs. There's been a number of premieres at the Met within recent years, and they're extraordinary, and all of that. Um, but I'm uh, part of the difficulty of them is the reproduction ability of them this one because of its roots uh within the ori- an original novel by virginia woolf and then um turned into a movie in 2002 and then now into this new um operatic release i feel like it taps into a different and very modern way that opera can be perceived and has three extraordinary Superstars is almost an understatement for the three women stars. And so the the excitement level of this is um, at the highest pitch that I've seen. So just by reading what's out there at the time that we're taping this, it hasn't um, quite It's about to have its premiere, so by the time Fredonia sees it on December 10th, which is actually very close to the premiere and thus that much more exciting, we'll just be getting reviews and uh, things that are more reserved for an older operatic time. Uh, So it's kind of we're we're tapping into what it might have felt like uh, more 19th century when operas were being um, just rolled out new often and part of the common uh, framework of the art form well let's talk
0: about the star power shall we because i think that's probably <laughs> that's probably the best there's an hour and a half
4: right there Tom. I, so.
0: I know that i i understand that i mean we could spend 30 minutes on each one of the uh, uh three leading performers we've got renee fleming coming back to do this we've got kelly o'hara coming in and uh, i believe it's joyce de donato is that Joyce correct?
4: DiDonato, right uh, so uh, these three women uh, uh among them and uh, amongst them Hold all of the greatest awards out there uh, of stage and screen and audio that represent the finest of what art is, the finest of what uh, performance is. Just such distinguished careers of uh, this—it's becoming, it has become now a norm for Miss O'Hara, Kelly O'Hara, to be at the Met. And when she uh, made her original debut. Uh, with them and is now performed with the men on several occasions. That was um, unusual and something that was noteworthy to talk about this Broadway star um, singing with operatic stars. But for those, for singers in the 21st century, we actually don't see that as shocking. It's more of an audience shock than it is an artistic shock, but uh, it's a perfect melding of all three women whose voices are extraordinary who each fit into a different operatic folk that serves the score serves the nature of their characters and each of whom are also regarded as um the world's best stage actresses this is a return for Renee Fleming to the Met after she um stepped away in 2017 she didn't step away to retire she made it very clear and um i really admire her for this and, and and you know just love to follow what she's doing as she moves forward because she stepped away to say that she'd done 30 years of traditional opera and you know she could keep doing that uh, forever and fill the house but she for herself as an artist wanted to be able to grow for herself and to find um different medium different styles and to very importantly be an advocate for bringing a different quality of theater to opera not to say that it's better but to open the door of possibility of a different quality of opera production and this is from the little bit that they've let out (laughs) but certainly the nature of the story and what we can um glean about what it's going to look like um It certainly fills that bill. She, she, this project began five years ago with uh, the composer and who's a favorite composer of hers, Mr. Putz. And of course, in an opera, it takes that long to get it from thoughts to stage. So not only is she a star in it, she is the um, catalyst and it's, you know, how unusual you think about the Maria Callas's of the world, um, those rare, rare superstars—Maria Callas, maybe Beverly Sills—that um, can have gone to the Metropolitan Opera and have them say, "Renée, what would you like to do?" and have her not say "La Bohème," but have her say this premiere, and and have us all be really grateful that she has. So, as an opera person myself and and a teacher of young opera singers, I greatly. Appreciate her advocacy in growing the art form so we become more 21st century.
0: Yes. Now, let's explain just a, a, for the listeners, just for a second, um, a little bit, uh, a plot summary about The Hours itself, um, yes. so that they understand what's going on. Um, many people will be familiar with the movie, which starred um, a trio of amazing film actors. We had uh, Meryl Streep, we had Nicole Kidman, and we had um, Juliana Moore. And the story is an interesting story, mm-hmm. because what it does is it takes the work of Virginia Woolf, a book, by, uh, a book she wrote called Mrs. Dalloway, and the story of Mrs. Allaway is a story of a woman in 1920s uh, England as she goes through a day of her life preparing for a party. Um, so you have Virginia Woolf writing this story. You have. Uh, I believe it's uh, Joyce DiDonato who's going to play. No, no, no. It's Kelly O'Hara.
4: No, Joyce DiDonato plays Virginia Woolf.
0: No, Joyce DiDonato plays Virginia Woolf. And then uh, Kelly O'Hara plays... um,
4: Julianne Moore role of Laura Brown, who's a 1950s homemaker in L.A. and unhappy who is, um, well, obsessing and, and has terrible anxiety about as we look at it now today but no one was advocating for her at that time and she just has her book of mrs dalloway and, yeah, so and she's and, and she's
0: to- and she's reading it and, yeah. and then clarissa who is uh, Renee Fleming's is actually living it because yes. she is about to give a party. And in many ways that her day parallels that of Mrs. Dalloway as she lives it and visits her, her, uh, uh, friend Richard, who is, uh, uh, suffering from AIDS, dying from AIDS and, um, so, so that's how the story parallels. Where one of the characters is writing the book, one of the characters is reading the book, and one of the characters is living the book. And it's yeah. a very, very interesting um, uh, juxtaposition. So th- th- it should make it very exciting. What have you heard at all about the actual score? I know it's not out <laughs> yet. I know it's a premiere.
4: Not, not much. There is at the time, at the t- again, the time that we're recording this. Um, there's a five minute cut. From the Philadelphia Orchestra, because the music director of the Met, um uh Maestro Nazet Saga, is also the music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and that was part of the power blend that would allow this production to happen. So they actually did a staged concert version of this and premiered the staged concert version with the Philadelphia Extra. There is a five minute clip that you can go to on YouTube that's him in a rehearsal, which is actually fascinating to see the Philadelphia Extra in jeans and um, you know their Nikes playing this stuff amazingly, uh, to have a sense of what the score is. Um, what I'm gleaning from what I can find out at this juncture is there's not as many time-specific references or or borrowing borrowing styles of music that would that carry you from one time frame to the other. The reason I think, at least from the little bit that they've re- released at this point, is that they do only refer to a, a portion of the Laura Brown music, which is the 1950s LA that has jazz-ish pop-ish more elements in it that give us a sense of what that time period in is but um renee selected this composer and she speaks um quite completely about this. There's a recent Vogue article that just came out about this premiere. And she talks about why she loves his work so much and uh, a sweeping quality of the vocal lines. And he speaks in turn about why he loves to write for her and what he loves about the, 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 the flow and the natural legato and the beauty of her highest range but also a, a color in the darker part of her range and so it it seems to me that it's going to be beautifully vocally written something that singers love even if it's a harmonic scope that is you know more unusual or, or not straightforward but it's very thick orchestrally from the little bit i've heard but again that's a tiny clip so i'm i can't wait um to have it revealed uh, as well
0: well, I, can't, I have to imagine that it's going to be highly dramatic because the, story, the stories themselves are all highly dramatic. You get a, a, a great deal of – there's a great deal of operatic intensity even in the film and the novel yeah. and within Virginia Woolf's life and everything like that. So it's almost as if this whole thing was made to be put into operatic
4: form right and going back to its its original forms, it's even at a time when Virginia Woolf was trying to um kind of corral her own emotions, corral her life, get her life to be more if you will quote unquote, normal. One of the things I find fascinating about an important shift in the movie rendition of the book and that is then carried over into the opera is what Richard the friend for whom they're having the party who's dying, is dying of AIDS in these more contemporary versions. And there's also reference in um into the story that Clarissa, Renee Fleming in this case, had um had a relationship with Richard before. And so there's this other very, very fresh emotionally for those of us living today, um, a fresh emotional understanding of this person's passing and all of the questions that arise from this clarissa is living uh she has a a a female partner and they're having a little trouble in their relationship so there is all there's all of this weightedness of expectations of relationships Uh, virginia wolf and her rather quiet husband laura Mm -hmm. brown and her going through the motions husband they're not really happy but on the on the outside they look like they could be in a 1950s dick van dyke you know um comedy and then the complexities of 21st century um relationships and um love is love and loss is loss and i i can't wait to see that and how that's scripted into music i have a feeling that it's going to be Uh, like a, a a tear rending kind of score that, um, that many, many of us, you know, just, it's a contemporary thing that we all um, are surrounded by that hasn't actually been spoken to all that much not on stage even, but even in normal society, if you will.
0: Yeah. I, I I can see that coming. I mean, it, it it does sound like a a tremendous thing. We didn't get let's talk just for a second about um uh Joyce DiDonato, because I don't want to shortchange oh. her in terms of her voice and her vocal quality. Yeah. Most of us, I Kelly O'Hara, Renee Fleming, Renee's a superstar, Kelly O'Hara is a Broadway superstar. Joyce DiDonato, a little under the radar, maybe, but
4: uh enough for opera people. She is the Mezzo, me, de, the Mezzo of the the Age said, you know, she has reviews that say this is the opera singer of the 20th century. Um, an American uh, grew up in uh, Kansas. Uh, graduated from Wichita State, which has an uh, ex- has always had an exemplary opera program. She's 53 now, at the real peak of an operatic career. And um, Tom, you'd appreciate this. You and I often talk about the difference between. Um, Non, non-musical non theater, whether that's opera, musical theater, straight theater, if you will, and opera and, and you know, techniques and physicality. We've, we've both, you know, taught people and dealt with the differences of that. She um, is so easy moving in and out of any of those genres. There's a quality that she has that is highly theatrical. And then she sings. So it's like you don't Say this is an opera singer who is an amazing actress. You, I, I, even when you look at her and you look at her promotional materials and such, this is an actress. You know, this is a, this is a, you know, Broadway, you know, theater, Tennessee Williams, deeply embedded actress. And then you find out that she opens the mouth and has this, a, a glorious voice, Grammy Award winner. You know, every possible audio recording kind of award that you could win, she she has gleaned and is in the prime of her career. So these three powerful women um, also set the stage for a change in the perception of, I'll say, opera for certain, but dare I say, power in production. Mm-hmm. Uh, of any genre, but opera by its very nature because the majority of the canon is older fashioned in the nature of stories uh you know there's a femme fatale and somebody's dying as renee even says in one of her reviews she says uh well i get to play somebody different than someone who's happy and then suddenly dies (laughs) (laughs) gets stabbed or dies of tuberculosis or that that uh something that a full lyric soprano a dramatic soprano like she is you know experiences in those roles I don't want to say that that stereotype has, has purposefully been carried down over the years. We, we've gotten past that in the last, last couple of decades. However, I will say that this power force of women who are in and of themselves powerful artists, and we admire them for their leadership and advocacy as artists, when you put them together and know that this was created by the leading soprano who selected the people that are involved, really, really turns the table on what's going to be possible and breaks down. I, I, and for it to be at the Metropolitan Opera, which is highly traditional, which is a, a lovely thing as well, really speaks volumes about where we're going to be able to go uh, and all of the creative possibilities that this door opens.
0: You are so excited, Julie. I, I am. I am. I was going to. I was going to ask you the questions. What What does this mean to you, both as an opera singer and as a woman? Oh. But I, I think you've already answered that question.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it it really, you know, as I these are all. I'm. I'm Renee. Uh, uh, we believe it or not, uh, Renee and I sang at Art Park when op, uh, Art Park had a. Uh, she'll even remember this pleasantly, God, if she even hears this, but um, uh, uh, she, they, when Art Park had a repertory opera company, this is back in the late 70s, early 80s, um, she and I were were there the first summer together and, you know, tooled around Lewiston and went to Niagara Falls late at night and did things that 22 and 23-year-olds do. Um, so we're of a similar, similar age and... Um, and i admire all three of these women for because i there is a strength that they have to have to have um achieved the honors that they've achieved it's true for every artist most certainly but um um they have had to sort through some in their in their age bracket they've had to sort through some sexism along mm-hmm. the way some challenges and have done so with grace and poise and dignity and intellect um much and, like your
0: much like yourself julie
4: well much like
0: yourself i the I, audience I, I need needs to, to know Oh, no, the audience needs to know this. I mean, you produced the Hillman Opera for I don't know how many years.
4: 27, but 20, who's counting? <laughs> 27
0: years. You're now into producing operas for Syracuse uh, Opera and practically rebuilding that company. You are just like these women. You are you are trailing, the, blazing that trail. And, you know, so I can understand why you relate to these women, because you've been doing it yourself, Julie. You've been doing it yourself all these years.
4: Thank you. And I'm going to send the love back to you here. So, um, truly Tom, you know, in my earliest days, I was a newbie when I first came to Fredonia and, um, gosh, I would have never thought that I was ever going to produce anything or direct anything. That was, that was the farthest thing from my mind. And so being able to have mentorship and, um, be treated with respect that I could really understand what all this was through a theatrical lens first and then a business lens later i i toss that thank you right back to you
0: you're more than welcome now one more question before we go um this is going to be an event yeah right? dress up <laughs> yeah you got to dress up but uh but you were you were telling me before we actually got on got on uh, the recording um about what kind of an event this is going to be in new york just, just
4: oh yeah yeah, yeah. Well, wearing our, you know, wearing my producer hat, I I never used to care what ticket sales were, but now I care, you know, I'm always looking up how many tickets have been sold and how much are they? So for the opening, it's a 4,000 seat theater. They have 257 tickets left. There's, if you want to go, well, you'll hear this afterwards, but they'll, you could still get two seats in the family circle in the nosebleed for $89 each or there's still two seats left in the orchestra for $935 each. So as I told you Tom, if I'm spending $935 in a ticket, I'm buying a new dress <laughs> and I'm 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 doing I, if I've, if I've already spent that much, I might as well. I ought to spend some more and really do it up. So when you come to this show, I do believe this release that we're going to see at the Opera House, which is amazing that it's so close to the actual premiere. Um I suggest, you know, treat it that way. If you're someone who loves to come to the opera and make it a special occasion, this would certainly be it. Or come in your jeans and your sneakers and be comfortable. I mean, there's, but don't, don't be afraid to wear your finest, if that, and go out to dinner afterward.
0: Oh, that that sounds like a great idea. Um, Anything else you want?
4: I'm accepting invitations. Am I allowed to say that? (laughs) Oh, yes,
0: you are. Of course you are. (laughs) I imagine your door is going to be knocking down any minute, Julie, any minute. Uh, Anything else we need to know about this particular opera that you'd like to get? I can't
4: can't overemphasize the power of a premiere. And uh, we in a TV generation, TV and movie generation, things are turning around all the time. Um, you know, there, this is us, this is a great show, right? And so we see six or seven episodes of it and then we can't wait till the next season. But there, then there's all these other releases that happen over the course of a calendar year. And we, we time our viewing schedule accordingly. We look at ne- Netflix or anything like that. Um, uh, and repertory theater can be like that too, where you have six Gilbert and Sullivan shows and we're gonna go in the summer and we're gonna see six Gilbert and Sullivan shows. Opera premieres are few and far between, and few bring to it the pre-curtain cachet of the commitment of three amazing artists who could say yes to a lot of other projects and who collectively signed on to this. I also found it noteworthy when I look on the Met website that these three artists are performing in every performance of it. Now that is extraordinarily rare at the Metropolitan Opera because these are world's world, the world's greatest stars and they're flying here and there and they do four aidas and then they fly to France and they do something and they come back and do more aidas or, or you know that's the norm. For these people to have committed to this work, every single performance gives me uh, a sense of their passion for it and what they also believe it is going to be.
0: Julie Newell, your passion for opera knows no limits. Uh, and uh, it's always, always wonderful to talk to you. I, I hope that we've got more Met uh, Live at the Met shows coming up Great. in the spring. I hope I'll be able to catch you then again for something gotcha. else. But
4: I'm honored to be invited. Thank yeah. you so much.
0: Until then, we will catch you at the uh, premiere of The Hours, okay? Yeah,
4: indeed. Thank you so much.
0: Okay. Thank you, Julie. Be sure to catch this remarkable event on Saturday, December 10th at 1 p.m. live in full HD and stereo sound. Tickets are $20 for the general public, $18 for Opera House members, and $10 for students. Get your tickets online at www.fredopera.org or by calling the box office at 716-679-1891.
3: I need turkey, please. I'm excited for Thanksgiving Day, cause I could eat turkey all day. And i will finished with cookies and cake. Some chocolate. Grandma's bringing her famous stuffing. And we're gonna make broccoli and cheese. Maybe even some warm apple bake.
0: Turkey. And that's it for this gobble gobble edition of Notes from the Isle Seat. My thanks to Dan Lenzi and Zertan Lim and Julie Newell for being my guests on this episode. Notes from the Aisle Seat is a production of the 1891 Fredonia Opera House in Fredonia, New York. For more information on any of the Opera House events, call the box office at 716-679-1891. Visit the website at www.fredopera.org or email at operahouse at Notes from the Aisle Seat is now available wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and also on the Opera House YouTube channel. If you like this podcast, please consider following us by clicking the follow button on our website at ioc.podbean.com and spreading the word through your social media feeds. If you have an arts event you'd like featured on the podcast, why don't you drop us a line at operahouse at fredopera.org and we'll see about featuring your event. Please try to give us a month's advance notice, if possible, to facilitate timely scheduling. If you have any suggestions, comments, or criticisms of the podcast, just drop a line at operahouse at fredopera.org. We'll be glad to receive your feedback. Our next episode will be in one week, not two, but one week on November 30th, 2022. I'm Tom Lachlan, and until then, be safe out there and be kind to one another.
3: I want some pumpkin pie now Cause it's so super sweet Don't let nobody eat it Unless that's somebody's me Covering it with cream There ain't no other way Pumpkin pie is better than Well, almost anything I don't want no salad, no I don't need no vegetables Fill my plate with all the good stuff But especially the turkey, turkey. Yes, please And I'll forget, forget the brownie, brownie.